listeners. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, we ask the question, what do you buy the children of the terrorist who tried to kill your wife? Now that is a point of etiquette I don't think Miss Manners ever had to consider, but it is something that David Harris Gershon did have to think about when he decided to meet the family of Mohammed Odeh. Odeh was a Palestinian Hamas operative who set off a bomb in a crowded cafeteria at Jerusalem's Hebrew University in the summer of 2002. David and his wife Jamie were living in Jerusalem at the time, and Jamie and some friends were eating lunch in that cafeteria when the bomb exploded. The two friends were killed, along with seven other people, and many more were injured, including Jamie, who was severely burned. In time, she managed to recover and move on with her life, but David, who wasn't actually present during the bombing, had a harder time psychologically. He tried putting the events out of his mind, he tried therapy, but for years he continued to struggle with a sometimes debilitating case of PTSD, until he decided to confront the trauma head-on. Instead of avoiding thinking about it, he began to learn everything he could about the bombing incident, about the events leading up to it, and the man who did it. And then finally, he ventured into the lion's den. He went to visit the bomber's family at their home in the Arab part of Jerusalem. Only, it wasn't a lion's den after all. David Harris Gershon's new memoir of the experience is titled, What Do You Buy the Children of the Terrorist Who Tried to Kill Your Wife? And he's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project. Stay tuned. David, first of all, thanks for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Do you still have the piece of shrapnel that was removed from your wife Jamie's abdomen after the, the bombing? I do, actually. It's a small quarter-inch um, nut that um, the doctor actually handed me in uh, in the emergency room after right after surgery. And, uh, you know, for for whatever reason, perhaps because it's the most tangible thing that I can actually touch and, and look at and say, yes, this actually happened, this bombing. Um, I actually do have it. I mean, it's not something that I pull out very often, but I know where it is. Where is it? It's actually in a backpack, uh, same backpack it's been in for, probably, I don't know, probably a decade. Um, it's in a little plastic sandwich bag. I imagine your feelings about it have changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's first. Um, it, it was something that definitely represented nothing but trauma and, and the absurdity of, of the experience that we had uh, that we had encountered, and, and also something that I simply didn't want to look at at all. I just kept it simply because it, it was something that I couldn't bear to actually throw away. Um, and it, you know, even though I don't really take it out and look at it, you know, it doesn't have the same effect on me anymore in terms of being uh, being a symbol of, of pure trauma after everything that I've gone through. One of the things you went through with regard to just that one little object that was kind of hard to contemplate as a reader was washing it. It still had blood and tissue on it when the doctor handed it to you. Yeah, I, you know, it's, this, it's one of these scenes that I describe in the book where the doctor comes out of the emergency room after having removed this nut from, from Jamie's small intestine in a container that I describe as really, you know, as if you had ordered smoked salmon or hummus or something at the grocery store. You know, it was a you know plastic container with a lid, a label on top. And he just handed it to me and said, you know, you're going you're gonna to want this, and uh, walked away. And I opened it up, and, you know, you could see that, you know, it still had film and, and fluid. And I just, you know, I probably scrubbed it for a half hour just trying to remove everything. Oh, what was that like? Um, well, you know, 
at that stage, I had already shut down emotionally. I mean, the moment that I saw my wife um, for the very first time after the bombing and, and saw her injured, um, I became unfeeling for um, obvious psychological reasons in terms of just trying to survive. I shut down. And so, you know, I have memories of all these moments, but they're not attached to emotions necessarily. It was just a kind of a process. It was just something that had to be done, illogical perhaps, but I just knew that I needed to do it. It's been uh, about 11 years since the bombing. Um, but if I had talked to you, let's say, six, seven years ago, I, I suspect you wouldn't have sounded as kind of lighthearted as you do now. No, I mean, definitely, if we would have spoken six years ago, um, it would have been, you know, post-terrorist attack after we have had moved to the States. And I probably, you know, would have been still suffering a little bit from some PTSD-like symptoms. I probably was still a little bit incapacitated by the trauma that I had failed to really confront head-on in, in the ways that, you know, we're probably going to be talking about um, <laughs> later on. But, uh, yeah, I would I would have been a much different person. And, you know, it's interesting. I personally, I'm, I'm a pretty sarcastic, neurotic individual. And people who have read this book, one of the first things that they usually tell me is, you know, I, I knew it was going to be serious, but I didn't realize it was going to be funny as well. Mm. Um, and uh, I think a part of that humor that comes out is something that obviously has been able to come out as I've been able to recover from this, but it's also, you know, it's also how I cope, you know, trying mm. to laugh at things, mm. um, particularly the ridiculous is, is a coping mechanism myself, that I use myself. Um, I didn't laugh a lot, and that's not a criticism of your sense of humor, but maybe just a statement about the degree to which I empathized. But I did giggle at one scene. Um, you were traumatized by the bombing even though you weren't there. You, right. you were eating spaghetti in your apartment when your wife, Jamie, and others you know, were in this cafeteria at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and some of them were killed, some were seriously injured. Uh, but it obviously messed you up bad. And at one point, among the many symptoms you evidenced was understandably a lot of paranoia. The incident that cracked me up was the story of the xylophone alarm. Yeah. Want to tell that story? Yeah, I mean... You know, when I came back, I mean, I was definitely suffering post-traumatic stress symptoms as a secondary victim. And, and at that stage, I didn't really give myself license to, to view myself as a victim because, like you said, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the attack. I wasn't the primary person who was injured. Um, but I was having these, you know, these symptoms. I was hyperventilating in public, and I couldn't sleep at night. And the scene that you're talking about is, you know, we, we had given our neighbor, very nice guy, um, our keys to the apartment just so he could collect our mail and, and put our mail in. And then, you know, when we had gotten back and he had, you know, given us the key back, I suddenly in a panic wake up thinking that, you know, this guy, of course he's going to murder us. I mean, isn't that what they always say about, you know, murderers? Is that you would never suspect, you know, it's the people who seem that they were the quietest and the nicest. And so I, and we should say that this was after you'd come back to the U.S. You're yeah, no this longer. after I'd come back to the U.S. I yeah. mean, you know, we had, we had just taken a random trip and, and come back to our apartment and and I, was, I had convinced myself that this guy was going to try and murder us. I mean, obviously, making the connection between my past trauma and this, but unable to, you know, quote, you know quash it anyway. And so I set up a, a xylophone at the front door, keys facing out, hoping that, you know, if, you know, when he opened the door, the xylophone would wake us up and I'd be able to spring into action. Um, yeah, I did laugh at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I also identified because uh, I've had moments of paranoia where I've done things that were just as silly. <laughs> so you're not alone. Um, but you you suffered really for years after the bombing, and as we said, you know you weren't there for the bombing. Jamie was. She got over it a lot faster than you did. She did. 
and I'm sure everyone asks you this. Yeah. But why? Why did she? And she suffered serious injuries, burns, uh, severe burns. Um, you know, and there was a long recovery and a, a tremendous pain. But I mean, how did she get over it so much more quickly than you? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a question that a lot of people ask. Um, and I mean, all I can say is that for her, I mean, she was able to achieve an incredible level of psychological recovery through um, through therapy. Um, she just had some. Um, she did some amazing work, and I think you know, to a certain extent, she believed in the therapy, um, and she believed in the process in ways that. I myself actually, when I eventually tried to go through the therapeutic process, didn't. Um, and so, you know, she was able to move beyond this remarkably quickly. And when I say move beyond, you know, it's not, there's no such thing as overcoming this such that it's never a part of you again. But she really did get to a place where she was able to function um, at a high level and, and really move beyond it. I, on the other hand, I, the, the symptoms just snuck up on me and remained par- perhaps partly because um, unlike her, I refused to view myself as a victim. I mean, she would say, you know, you need to go to therapy, you need to do something, watching me hyperventilate and watching me, like, you know, try and, you know, make sure that nothing in our apartment killed our child, putting NFL-grade padding on the coffee tables and just basically freaking out over everything. And I told her, I'm fine, it's, you know, this is just this is normal. And <laughs> finally it got to the point where it's obvious that it was not normal anymore. Um, but the therapeutic work that I did just didn't work. And it didn't take, and I don't know why. It's a rambling answer because the truth is I'm not exactly sure why she was able to recover so much quicker than I did. It just was, this was the way that it played out. Well, well, you, you mentioned that you didn't see yourself as a legitimate victim. In fact, you felt a certain amount of guilt for not being there, right? Yeah, I mean, I felt guilt for not having been there um, when the bombing happened, which is illogical. I also had guilt because... I knew things about the laxity of the security at Hebrew University that my wife did not, things that I did not tell my wife, articles that I read in Hebrew in the student newspaper, kind of explaining the concerns amongst the students of the lack of, lack, you know, lack of security there. And um, so I had a lot of guilt um, that paralyzed me in terms of, you know, what could I have done to have changed uh, or thwarted something like this. You both had talked about Terrorism, of course, going to Jerusalem. A lot of people who go to Israel think of it. It's the first thing they think of, I assume. And you guys had talked about it. You guys followed the news. You had even sort of fantasized about it in a way. Uh, You write that there had been times when, this is before the bombing, walking along busy streets in Jerusalem, I had stopped and thought, I want to experience it, wishing for a bomb to explode. Yeah, and that impulse was an ironic impulse. It wasn't, a, I mean, I knew that the impulse wasn't something that I truly wanted. But, um, you know, living in Israel during the Second Intifada, which is when we were there from 2000 to 2002, and just seeing the intense suffering that was going on um, on the side that I was witnessing at the time, which is the side um, in, in Israel, I just started to get the sense that perhaps the only way to actually truly authentically understand what it is to be Israeli and to be in this region is to experience one of these traumas directly. And it was, an, you know, it was a thought that I didn't truly believe, but a thought that I would have nonetheless. Um, and we were certainly, I mean, we made decisions on a daily basis about where we would go and where we wouldn't go based on the, the likelihood of being killed. Mm. Mm. 
Uh, tell me about your relationship to Judaism over your life. Um, you have some very interesting statements in the book. One, I come from a long line of God-haters. Yeah, I mean, well, that statement comes from, uh, I mean, my mom, um, her parents were uh, Holocaust survivors, and it was clear that she has a lot of existential angst um, related to uh, related to that experience and, and, and God and Judaism in general, because her, I mean, she would have, you know, Passover seders, and they would, they would observe a lot of the things at home, and yet it was clear that you know, there was there was some type of tension ex- existentially in the household, and me personally, I mean, I grew up in a, I grew up in a home that was Jewishly conservatively affiliated, but we didn't really do all that much affiliated. I went to Hebrew school, but we didn't do all that much, and so I didn't have that strong of an identity growing up. And uh, you know, it was actually deciding to go to Israel to try and actually begin to study some of these ancient texts and learn the language and, and kind of get to know more this, you know, heritage and religion that, you know, belonged to me and which I didn't really understand that well, that opened up, I guess, this pathway towards um, becoming a little bit more religious or becoming a little bit more observant, which was uh, a tick in time. It didn't last, but it was an experience I had. At some point in college, you started taking Jewish culture and heritage really seriously. I mean, you ended up getting a series of jobs, working with Jewish organizations. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, and then going for a kind of, was it a kind of religious retreat uh, in the desert in Israel? Yeah, well, I mean, I I worked for a number of different Jewish organizations, and then I actually went to Israel um, to study at a very traditional yeshiva, which is, you know, we studied Talmud and, and Aramaic texts. And, and just ancient Jewish law, and I kind of began to steep myself in a very orthodox um, environment. And, and for a time, it was something that I embraced. Um, but I'm also—I've always also been such a rational creature um, that it, it was temporary. I mean, this, it was a very temporal, spiritual experience that I kind of embraced in the moment. But once it was over. It wasn't something that really stayed with me in terms of, like, you know, feeling that I was an Orthodox Jew and mm, I was bound mm, by Jewish law mm, in every sense mm. of the word. But you had a very serious relationship to to being Jewish. Absolutely, I mean, yeah, it, absolutely. That was not casual. No, not at all. It was not casual at all. And when the bombing happened, you and Jamie, you know, sort of underwent the almost archetypal Jewish experience, being attacked for being Jews. Yeah. Did, yeah. What did that do to your sense of being Jewish then? You know, what's interesting about that is, I mean, obviously, fitting within the, the context of, of a history of Jewish suffering, it, that didn't ex- escape me or us in, in the slightest. But one of the interesting components of this, just technically, is that, you know, we were, we were attacked for being Jews, but we were also attacked for being Americans. Mm. Um, this particular bombing, the International Cafeteria at Hebrew University, which was the, the cafeteria where Americans were known to congregate, um, it was strategically intentional. Um, Americans had become a, a target at that point, and this particular attack was intentionally targeting both Jews and Americans. And so, you know, that dual identity that I had, you know, both as an American and as a Jew, both kind of came under attack in, in this particular bombing. Mm. Um, mm. But as for the Jewish side, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely, it was something that, you know, that I definitely thought about in terms of being witness to 
something that, you know, I had grown up learning about from, you know, Genesis, from, from, from Humash, from the Bible on, in terms of these, these uh, events of Jewish suffering. So did it feel then, you know, aside from that part you talked about, the American identity, did it feel as though this was a bonding experience in a way? You mean to Judaism? Yeah. No. No. No, because, and I'll tell you why, because um, in the wake of, uh, of the bombing, the only thing that I was really consumed with was the, the life of a caretaker. That was the only thing that was really on my mind almost 24-7. And as I said before, I mean, I had emotionally closed off. I was, I was shut down. Um, and so, you know, the types of, you know, intellectual or, or curious investigations that I might have done in a different circumstance, I mean, I was basically just trying to survive, you know, getting through these gruesome recoveries and trying to uh, trying to be there for my wife and do the things that I needed to do without uh, losing myself. It was That was really what I was consumed by for many, many months. And on the side, you know, in a way, experiencing your own post-traumatic symptoms, though not paying attention to those, I guess, initially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for a lot of us, our relationship to big historical events is intermittent, you know. Uh, sometimes we dip into them just out of interest or for amusement, uh, but usually see the course of our life as being sort of personal and individual. And then yeah. there are those moments when history looms up and grabs us by the throat, you know. Yeah. And a, I can't think of anything that that fits the picture more than a bombing like this. And one that was tied, as you found out, I guess in retrospect, to a series of events that had happened just in the two or three weeks preceding. Yeah. No, it's, it, I mean, you know, one of the things... Yeah, I didn't know anything about this attack, and I didn't really place it so much in a historical context um, until I decided that I was going to confront it and learn everything I could about it. And, you know, what, what precipitated that, which I think is, is relevant to mention now, um, you know, I, therapy hadn't, didn't work for me, and compartmentalizing definitely didn't work for me. And so I decided, you know, the only way that I personally might be able to overcome this trauma these PTSD-like symptoms that are that are plaguing me is to just confront this attack head-on. And so I researched. I started learning everything I could about it, and and it was the moment that I found in an Associated Press article that Muhammad Odeh, this man who had placed a backpack filled with explosives next to my wife, um, three weeks after the bombing, had been captured by Israeli police and had reportedly expressed remorse, had said, "I'm sorry." And it was that moment where something intuitively within me clicked, and I knew that I had to go back and try and confront him and ask him why. But even more than that, I just knew that I needed to understand more about Palestinian history and Israeli history and the history of the conflict and also all the circumstances that led up to the attack. And you're right, there were some very difficult political situations in the immediate time period, two weeks before the attack that happened, which directly led up to the attack, and I, you know, I began to integrate and just learn all, about all of these different historical pieces, and it really did put everything into perspective in terms of how what I had experienced fit into a very immediate and very and a larger historical context um, that was significant. You, you recount some events that I may have been aware of and may have forgotten, or I may not have ever really known all these details. That in July of 2002, 
just, you know, again, a week or two before the bomb went off that injured your wife, Jamie, and killed a total of nine people at Hebrew University, there had been this initiative, quiet sort of backdoor initiative, uh, within Palestinian political circles led by Fatah, the political party, to initiate a unilateral ceasefire in the Intifada, right? Yeah, you know, it's... um. I mean, this is this is one of the one of the historical parts of the book um, as I investigate what happened right right before this bombing. But um, basically, there was two weeks before this particular um, bombing, which was which was per- perpetrated by Hamas. There was really a historic, unprecedented push um, between all of the major players, um, from the moderate to the extreme, from from the PA to Hamas, to agree unilaterally to no longer use terror as a strategic uh, means to resist the the occupation and to resist um, you know this inability to, to have any any recognition of, of, of rights and there was a letter that um, the Times of, of London got right before this happened which was a signed letter and all the parties signed it and they all signed off on this particular ceasefire agreement and everybody apparently at the time in the Israeli government and this Palestinian um, government and all of the diplomatic players, they all knew about this and they knew how significant it might be. And the thing that I talk about in the book is how, you know, 90 minutes after this, what many think would have been a historic ceasefire agreement and, and, and renunciation of, of terror, 90 minutes after this was signed, Israel attacked um, Gaza. And killed a major Hamas figure, um, and it's hard to say that Israel is to blame for the bombing that injured my wife and killed the two friends with whom she was sitting at the time. But it's also difficult not to see du- the direct correlation between that strike that Israel perpetrated right after the ceasefire agreement was was signed and the calls for revenge that led directly to this and a couple of other bombings that happened in, in Jerusalem. Yeah, and that attack on Gaza took out. Uh, to use a kind of ugly phrase, took out the Hamas leader, but also a number of other people who just happened to be in the wrong place. Yeah, at the it was wrong time. it was it was particularly brutal. I mean, it was a, it was a particularly brutal middle military strike in, in that the the missile that struck this apartment building where this Hamas um, leader was living also happened to kill fourteen others and wound one hundred twenty five. Nine of the in, nine of the killed um, civilians were children, and it was it was an attack which was so. Uh, difficult to see that, I mean, at the time, the Bush administration, which never spoke out, and this is a Bush administration that was post-9-11, never spoke out against Israel, actually condemned what had happened. I mean, it was clear that, that something, uh, that this was not okay, what had happened. So so it may be that the Israeli government, led at that time by Ariel Sharon, really did sabotage what could have been a de-escalation of violence. And there's a section of your book where um, I realized uh, in short order that you were intentionally manipulating me, where you go back and forth and you say, look what Sharon did. Peace might have been at hand, and he went and launched this attack, which destroyed everything. And then, no, the Israelis knew that Hamas would never be capable of carrying out a a ceasefire. They're too decentralized. They don't have control. They weren't acting in good faith. There was never a a prospect. And the Israelis, meanwhile, had this mass murderer, this guy who'd planned many a suicide attack. They had him in their sights, and they 
really had to act. And you go back and forth, um, concluding that blame is impossible to fix in this situation. It's one of the things that I uh, that I really try to be as, as even-handed as possible and as as objective as possible and as open as possible about both sides, which is something that a lot of Americans don't get to see both sides in terms of the the suffering and 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 the consequences of uh, of the conflict. But um, yeah, it's uh, there's culpability on both sides um, in in a lot of these things, and this was an instance where. I believe that there was culpability on both sides as well, but it would be it would be dishonest for me to sit here and say that I didn't hold Israel partially responsible for uh, for what happened. Now we're leading up to the you know what is the climax of the book, which is you meeting with the family of the bomber. He was in prison, but you met with his family, Palestinian yeah. family. Yeah. But before that, you say that you had never considered the humanity of Palestinians, never had you considered their history. I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. You didn't think of them as human. And I'm going to quote now. They taught children to champion martyrdom and spill blood joyfully, dutifully, in the streets of Israel. All of them. I had written every one of them off. Really? Well, um, I mean, that that was, that was kind of an expression of, of what I had believed and what I had really thought. Um, I mean, embarrassingly, as, uh, as an American Jew growing up, um, I mean, this is kind of... You know, in in American mass media, I mean, certainly Palestinians are portrayed um, typically as a caricature of evil. I mean, usually you only see Palestinians if there's anything that has to do with the terrorist attack. And in the American Jewish community, Peter Weinart wrote a really great article about this in, in the fall. I mean, the American Jewish community doesn't really talk about the Palestinians. They talk about them. Um, and growing up, I didn't really think of them at all as anything other than my own enemy. Um, and I admit that, admitting a fault. I mean, it was, it, was, it was just pure ignorance. And I guess the irony of this, you know, experiencing this terrorist attack is that, you know, I was forced to learn about and confront who Palestinians were as a people and, and their humanity and their culture and everything that they had um, they have experienced um, during the course of the conflict. And obviously I don't see things in, in that way anymore. But before the bombing, I absolutely did see Palestinians as a caricature of evil, and obviously that, that shifted once I decided that I was going to try and, uh, you know, try and meet with, with Muhammad and ended up meeting and sitting down with his family, which was, uh, you know, that's a story in and of itself. Yeah, one we'll get to. But, you know, I, I sound a little incredulous when I ask that question, because you're such a obvious thoughtful guy, you know, and a well-read, well-educated guy, and a guy with a pretty liberal background, and there are a lot of people peace activists and uh, and others who've been presenting the Palestinian side for quite a while. So I guess I was genuinely surprised. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I think that that uh, that's a, being surprised is is. Um, I think that's kind of part of the point. It, yeah, I wonder whether you weren't oversimplifying your no, I, your past. I, I really. I mean, I appreciate the, the compliments. <laughs> You viewing me as thoughtful and liberal. I mean, I have to say that, you know, in this particular arena, and, and again, you know, I grew up learning about the history of Jewish suffering and about all of the people who have wanted to kill us in our history. And, you know, all I knew of Palestinians is that they were just the next in line in a very simplified, mechanical presentation um, it, when they were even presented at all. And so I really did not ever consider 
the the humanity of Palestinians before this happened. And obviously, that's changed completely. Um, yeah, to the point where you have a short capsule history of Israel uh, very scrupulously offered from the Palestinian perspective, uh, what it was like to be there in this land, having some national aspirations of their own after you know the Ottoman Empire receded, and then having a bunch of people land on their shores and eventually create a, a nation that didn't include them, and, and fleeing in many cases and becoming refugees. And I want to make it really clear, as I'm sure you would, if I didn't for you, uh, that you weren't condemning Israel, but you were just offering a perspective from the vantage of those other people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, another one of the historical parts of the book where I really do kind of lay out um, a little bit of span of the the history of the conflict. And and I did it, I tried to do it from, from both sides. And I think it's, you know, when I wrote this, you know, my primary audience in terms of who I was thinking of was obviously the, the North American audience, but also the North American Jewish audience. And, you know, most people just don't allow themselves to consider the Palestinian perspective and what their experience, which is a legitimate experience, which is a real experience, an experience of intense suffering in many cases and shame. Um, you know, a lot of people don't actually allow themselves or are even experience or, or read about this, this side of the conflict and, and this perspective of the conflict. And so when I laid out the history, I tried to do it from both sides and just to show, you know, where each side is coming from and the experiences that have led them to the point where we're at right now. But there are people who would condemn you for saying something like that. Well, I, look, there, there are people who would condemn me for, for saying things like that, but those people who condemn me for you know, having the audacity to actually consider the Palestinian perspective and, and their experience, those are people who view the conflict as a zero-sum game, meaning these are people who <clears throat> they, they think that only one side can win, right? Either Israel can win or the Palestinians can win. And if you do anything, meaning if, if you humanize Palestinians or, you know, even understand their experience, then you're automatically, um, you know, taking away from from Israel and, and harming its, you know, right to exist or even its existence itself. And so there are people who feel that way, but the problem is is that um, this conflict isn't a zero-sum game. I mean, the only way that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is going to have any type of peaceful political resolution is for both sides to actually gain. And I think this is one of the central points that, um, that I try to make in presenting both sides and, and showing, you know, you're right. I, there have been people who, I mean, the reaction to the book has been largely positive, but I've had people, you know, people who have written pieces online who have called me a self-hating Jew and a, um, you know, an anti-Semite for having written this and, and, and being critical of Israel, which it's bombastic and, and it's not legitimate, and these, these claims are meant to you know, shut down dialogue and debate on a very important issue that needs to be debated. Um, but you know, this is the type of pushback that you sometimes get in, in this arena, which is obviously very emotional. You've been touring and um, not just hitting bookstores, the usual sort of book circuit, but uh, you've been going to Jewish community centers and synagogues too, yeah? Yeah, I have. 
And, and has anybody said those things to your face, or is it only people online? What, no, nobody has said those things to my face, but I, I've been, you know, in the past couple of weeks, I've actually been in a number of different cities, and I've had some very contentious discussions, very, but very open discussions, too, but people who don't say it as bombastically as I just expressed, but do kind of accuse me of, you know, aiding and abetting the enemy mm. in terms of being, you know, you know, legitimizing, you know, Palestinian suffering or thinking that, you know, Israel could possibly be culpable when faced with, you know, a gang of terrorists. I mean, these same ideas in terms of the caricature of Palestinians as evil that I kind of had growing up is still a caricature that unfortunately is present in the minds of a lot of North American Jews. Um, And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to be able to go to these Jewish communities and actually present my story and do the question and answer sessions because these are the discussions that we have to be having talking about the Palestinians and talking about the situation and talking in real terms about what's going on on both sides I think it's absolutely what needs to happen um, you know um, offering my own opinion here uh, you know you'd think that it would be reassuring the message that you're bringing especially having met the family of Mohammed Ode, the Hamas bomber, and finding them to be welcoming people who didn't wish any violence on you and were very regretful that this had happened and so on, that the message that, ah, these people aren't monsters, ah, this isn't some massive monolithic force hell-bent on our destruction, that that would be reassuring. But you actually encountered tremendous resistance to this idea in Israel, the idea that going and meeting with the family might be a good thing. Um, again and again and again, people, both officials and just ordinary people, said this is this is a folly what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, and you know there there were people who were who were very much against what I was doing and also very fearful um, for my safety in terms of thinking that I was putting my life in danger in going to, you know, I was only going to East Jerusalem, but going to East Jerusalem to uh, to meet with the family. Who had invited you, by the way? Right, and you know this. The the whole way that this came about is, I, you know, I tried to uh, gain a meeting with Mohab in, in prison through the Israeli Prison Service, and they they declined. And and so through um, a human rights activist who actually knew the family and knew the neighborhood and so on where they lived, actually had me write a letter to them explaining who I was, that my intentions were peaceful, that I just wanted to understand who they were, and I wanted to understand Mohammed more. And she traveled to, to East Jerusalem. She delivered the letter to the family. They read the letter, and they literally invited me um, and told this woman to tell me to come to their home, which is why I went back. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, even though we decided to meet, we were both afraid of each other. Um, I mean, I was afraid of what I was getting myself into because, as I said before, I'd never really actually sat down with any Palestinians, and people were really pushing back against this and telling me that what I was doing was, was dangerous and, and, and even worse. On, on the other side, I mean, it's important to note that the family was terrified. I mean, they invited me, but they had no way of knowing that my intention wasn't actually to come and murder them in revenge. Um, and so we both had these fear obstacles placed before us that we were both able to overcome. You know, I in terms of them maintaining and sticking with their invitation and welcoming me with, with open
in arms and me deciding to just go ahead and, and do it and, and meet with them because I felt both for myself personally in terms of the recovery, but also politically, I understood that it had some potential significance, even on a macrocosmic scale, just to, just to meet with them and talk with them. Now, see, me, bleeding heart that I am, you know, I, I, I thrill to that prospect. I mean, I think, you know, this is a wonderful thing. Well, uh, but, but there are a lot of people, and, and I've encountered them as I've been going around talking, who, you know, their response is, okay, so maybe this family, then maybe this one family, they're not monsters. But they're they're so rare, you know. They're the minority, and you're painting Palestinians as if they're just regular people who just, you know, who just want to take their kids to school and go to the grocery store and live lives without, uh, you know, devoid of violence and conflict. You know, this isn't who they really are. And one of the points that I've been trying to make is that, you no, know, how do you know that? How do you know that that's not who Palestinians really are? And I mean, in fact, the majority of Palestinians in in many different polls. I mean, uh, it, there's so much variance when you when you poll Palestinians in Gaza or the West Bank or East Jerusalem, but most just want self-determination and an end to the conflict. I mean, this is the this is normative society, and it's the extremists on both sides that unfortunately have so much sway. I mean, this sounds awful easy to say and very glib on my part, but how much of this has to do with what happened in Germany? People who were one day your neighbors, your associates, your colleagues, the next day participating in or turning a blind eye to mass extermination. I would think uh, maybe a fatalistic uh, suspicion of human nature might enter the picture there, you know? Yeah, I don't think it's glib at all. I mean, I think it would be, I think it would be irresponsible to not take into account, you know, the history of the Holocaust and that intense trauma, national and personal. I mean, a, a trauma that affected my family very in a very real way. And I think it definitely still plays um, a part in the way in which a lot of Jews view the world um, and view the potential evil that, uh, that exists in the world, particularly, you know, I mean, <laughs> genocide. It, it would be impossible for that not to you know, devastatingly impact a national consciousness. You know, there's, it is really interesting, and it's kind of kind of applicable, but I actually mentioned in the book, but there's a study done by Daniel Bartal at Tel Aviv University where he kind of, he measured Israelis' willingness to compromise with Palestinians. They, he wanted to know who would and who wouldn't compromise with them on a, on a two-state solution. He, his assumption was that um, Israelis who were afraid for their own safety, you know, thought maybe they would be injured in a terrorist attack, they wouldn't be be willing to compromise, but, but others would. And what, what he found was really interesting, and I think it, it, it relates to the, the point that you're making with your question. He found that Israelis who feared for their personal safety um, were just as likely to compromise with Palestinians as anybody else. That personal fear of your personal safety had no bearing on their ability to say, you know what, let's compromise on a two-state solution. But it was those Israelis who feared for the existence of the actual state who would not compromise in any way with the Palestinians on a two-state solution. Mm. And I think it's that existential fear of annihilation mm. that plays a huge mm. role in a lot of this, these obstacles to peace in Israel. And when you consider that those who are in power are the ones who are actually responsible for the existence of the state itself in some ways, it becomes a little bit more psychologically understandable why there have been so little movement 
on the Israeli side in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And interestingly enough, also just related to my whole experience, the only thing that was able to move those Israelis who feared for the existence of the state in terms of you know moving them towards compromise was meeting Palestinians. That was it. Mm. The increase of empathy, actually knowing who the other side was, that was the only thing that affected their movement in terms of whether or not they would agree to compromise the Palestinians or not. So, so I want to talk a little bit more about the resistance to that kind of um, personal contact, resistance to the possibility of knowing the other side that you encountered. I mean, the skepticism about what you were doing, the warnings, and in fact, I, I would say cynicism in some cases. Tell the story of the taxi driver, Moshe, who you met you know, not long before you went yeah. to visit the uh, the Oday family yeah, so, in East Jerusalem. Yeah, this 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 uh, this taxi driver who I met just a few days before I was going to meet the Oday family. You know, I got in and we had our cursory uh, hellos, and he asked me what I was doing in Israel, and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to tell him. And I told him what I was doing there, and he looked at me, and he basically started, you know, he said, you know, do you know what I've done for the last thirty years? And of course, I said no, and he basically told me that he had been, you know, he'd worked for the IDF. Uh, at, Specifically with Palestinians, he was fluent in Arabic, and that was his arena. And he basically, you know, very cynically told me, you know, there's, there's nothing that you can learn by meeting with this family of yours. And, and, he, and he said, you know, the only thing that you need to know about Palestinians is, you know, if you give them your hand, they'll shake it. But if you give them their back, your back, they'll kill you. And that's the only thing that you need to know. There's no reason to go see this family. It was kind of an extreme example of the type of pushback that I was actually receiving when people would learn what I was about to do. He also made you promise to get back in touch with him uh, after what he thought would be your futile attempt to make peace with these folks. Yeah. So he could say, I told you so. Yeah, he, ba- he basically said, you know what, when you, you, go, you go meet with your Palestinian family. You go ahead and do your little, your little journey thing. Um, and, and when you're, you're done with it, I want you to call me. I'm going to take you to the Shook. I'm going to buy you the best lunch you've ever had in your life. And while you're eating it, you're going to tell me how I was right and you were wrong. <laughs> and and you did call him afterwards. And I did call him afterwards. And I told him he was wrong. And he was like, eh. Yeah, eh you'll see. see. You'll see. Um, you know, in, in becoming, I, I guess, would you call yourself a peace activist at this point in your life? Um, I mean, I would definitely say that I'm an activist. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if I would say a peace activist, and I think, you know, unfortunately, maybe just because, you know, there perhaps might be a little bit of a, a naive stereotype to the idea of a peace activist. But I, I definitely am a political activist. I mean, my writing, I, I view the book as a work of activism in many ways. I mean, you know, in a, in a literary sense, my goal is to try and create a work of art and something beautiful out of something horrible. But it definitely is a work of activism, and my continued political writings, I think, are, are, are politically activist in nature. Mm. I was wondering, though, uh, you used the word naive. I was going to use that in my next question, which is peace activists are often accused of being naive, yeah. uh, you know, left to their own devices, they'd all be slaughtered like sheep right. uh, without the smarter, more wary people to protect them. Yeah. You, though, have an extra bit of credibility, don't you? I mean, having been through a bombing in Jerusalem... I don't mean to sound like this, but, I mean, isn't that a card you can play now? Well, it's, so this is what's interesting, actually. I mean, personally, 
and, and I say this and people don't believe me, but I really don't view myself as having any more, you know, quote unquote street cred for having gone through a terrorist attack than anybody else. I mean, I don't feel like I have any more legitimacy in terms of speaking out and critiquing Israel than anybody else. No, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that either myself, but I would say that some people might think you do. So I, so I think that you're right, and I think that the people who do are actually the people who oppose me, and perhaps one of the reasons why they so strongly oppose me and try to delegit- delegitimize my, my voice and my message is perhaps a fear that I might have a little bit more legitimacy in my message because of what I've experienced. And so to that extent, I think you're actually right. Well, we've been leading up to this moment when you met the Ode family in East Jerusalem. This, again, is the family of the man, Mohammed Ode, the, the Hamas operative who planted the bomb in that cafeteria that went off and killed nine people, and including two close friends of yours and severely injuring your wife, Jamie. Um, he's in prison, uh, but you went and met with them. Tell me about that experience and, and what it was like. Um, so they, this, was a, this is a very moderate uh, middle-class family, a family that does not hold extremist views, a family which did not know that Muhammad, their son, their brother, their husband, um, was involved with Hamas, was engaged in any of this at all. And, and you know, the moment that I that I saw them, when I when I got um, to their doorstep, and the family came out and they greeted me warmly, um, I just felt at ease immediately. It was clear that once they saw they could trust me because I had kind of been vetted by by some people to make sure that I was safe. Um, it was clear that they were welcoming me as an honored guest, that this was a family that was accustomed to having guests and that I was being treated very, very, uh, as an important guest. And then, you know, I sat down in this beautiful living room with an amazing wraparound couch and gorgeous furniture, and they served me tea. And, I mean, you know, if you didn't understand or know what the context was, it would be the the you know, the most gentle, kind encounter you could possibly imagine. And they were full of regrets. They were baffled by what Mohammed had done. And they offered, you know, something of a possible explanation that they thought he had broken uh, after a bunch of demoralizing, traumatic experiences of his own being uh, roughed up by Israeli police and soldiers, seeing other people humiliated, you know, going through that experience. Do you think that is the explanation? Um, so before I answer that, I, I want to say that they did express um, how sorry they were. I mean, they didn't apologize, but they just tried to express to me that, you know, if they had only known what he was engaged in, they would have done anything they could have to stop him. And I believe that um, fully. And, you know, after after that had been expressed, um, they did try and just explain, you know, on in their terms. I mean, they had to try and rationalize how, you know, like, for example, his mother, you know, he brought his, a mother who had brought her son up to be a good person, or at least thought she had brought her son up to be a good person, describing how sensitive he was as a child and how he would just sit around and watch the news and watch Palestinians being, you know, killed and beaten on the television, his experiences of going to jail for throwing rocks and all of these things. Their rationale is that he must have broken. Something must have snapped emotionally inside him to, to create this monster, this momentary monster that didn't happen to anybody else in their family. And I can't sit here and say it's a, it's a justification or rationalization. All I can say is, is that this is all the family can grasp and hold on to in terms of trying to understand how this could have happened.
What about you, though? I mean, you you really thought a lot about not just the bombing, but the guy who did it. You wanted to meet with him initially, and you were not able to, uh, even though his family said he was quite willing and, and you know, open to your visit in prison, um, the Israeli authorities, and you tried every which way to get to him. You couldn't get to them. They all said that he refused. Yeah. Um, and you're not clear yet whether he ever really refused or whether you're being prevented from seeing him. Yeah. Uh, but you wanted to meet him very badly, so you've thought a lot about him. What do you think? Um, I mean, in all honesty, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some sense, one of the things that I've come to is that, you know, uh, evil and, and and horrible things that exist in the world in, in all different types of contexts, I don't, I don't know if there's always going to be a rational explanation for for these types of actions and these types of things that happen. Um, I, can't, I wouldn't be able to sit here and, and with a straight face be able to say, oh, well, now, you know, now I understand exactly why Muhammad would have turned into a mass murderer and, and killed you know, many people in several terrorist attacks. I don't, I don't. But I think that that's, for me now, I understand that that's not necessarily all that important anymore, understanding him personally. Um, and understanding why he did what he did. I think what what kind of has moved me beyond everything and has made me realize what's more important is getting to know his family and getting to know the overall context within which Palestinians have been living and engaging over the last 40, 50, 60 years. Um, it's kind of brought me to, a, on a, I guess, a, on a broader national level, a greater understanding of, of why the conflict persists and why it's so difficult and intractable and, you know, the, the frame and the lens of both sides in terms of what's happened for so long. Your book has a great title. Did you think of it or did someone else? No, well, here's what happened. I mean, the book, the book originally had a different title. It was actually titled Shrapnel, and uh, my publisher is a U.K. publisher, which simultaneously published in North America. And uh, another book ended up being published by that name right before ours, and so they had to come up with a new one. And so the, the name of the book, What Do You Buy the Children of the Terrorist? who tried to kill your wife, was actually the first line in the pitch letter to my publisher. Ah. And when our original title got taken, you know, they came to me and they're like, you know what, David, we know it's long, but, you know, this is, <laughs> this is what grabbed our attention in the first place. And it really sets the tone in terms of understanding what the book's about. What do you think? And I thought it was great. It says so much. It may be long for a title, but it's just one simple sentence, and it says so much. It relates to the actual visit. You, before going, wanted to bring some gifts for the kids because you were going to meet Mohammed Ode's two young children. Yeah. And you ended up getting some gifts. What did you end up getting them? Yeah, I found myself at a Toys R Us right before I went to meet with them, and I just felt like I needed something to show them immediately that my intentions were, were peaceful. And so for there was a five-year-old girl at the time, and I bought her just a kind of plain stencil said it was difficult to find something that didn't have like you know pop images or princesses on them throughout the store and for the boy i bought a rubik's cube which you know at the time even the moment that i bought it i thought you know a puzzle that's that's perfect as a metaphor Uh, (laughs) how'd it go over they loved it i mean you know these kids they were just sweet They, they didn't know who i was and exactly why i was there they were just they just knew me as somebody who was bringing gifts Oh, you were introduced as a friend of I daddy's. I was. I was introduced as a friend of their father. Oh, my God. Because what else can you possibly tell children? Yeah. Um, oh. You know, and I remember giving them these gifts. Do they know their dad's in prison for a bombing? 
I'm I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that they they're much older now, and I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that they. I guess I, now. I guess the I meant. Time, did they know? Yeah, at the time, I think that the older one certainly did. I don't know the extent that the younger one knew exactly why their their father was wow. in prison. But um, yeah, I remember handing them the gifts and thinking that they were beautiful children, and also you know thinking to myself, you know, that I'm not your your father's friend. You were ultimately able to shake off the the traumatic stress syndrome you'd been struggling with. Yeah, definitely. And where do you think in this process that happened? Um, well, I think it happened rather immediately after my meeting with the Oda family. I mean, I returned to the States probably two or three days right after that encounter. And um, friends and colleagues of mine immediately saw a change. Um, I mean, the symptoms that I had been exhibiting were gone, and the distress that I was exhibiting was gone. Um, and again, you know, Psychologically, I don't understand exactly how it worked. I mean, I've had people tell me and from a restorative justice standpoint how it could have worked. But um, it was rather immediate and abrupt, to be honest. After years of trying. After uh, years. Well, after years of trying, but trying using methods that were unsuccessful. Um, it was this going back and meeting with the family and this, you know, political re- reconciliation, which was also a personal reconciliation, a mo- moment of healing, it really did somehow alleviate all of the symptoms that I've been uh, I've been suffering from. What happens when events occur that are reminiscent of the bombing, like say the Boston Marathon bombing earlier this year? Do you have flashbacks? No, I don't actually. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great question. When these types of events occur, um, I mean, it, it immediately obviously recalls um, some of what uh, we experienced. But in terms of a flashback and being traumatic memories of what happened. Um, they really don't. Mm. David, you wanted to be a writer for a long time. Uh, and, again, I'm, I'm asking a lot of questions that I think uh, could be seen as insensitive, but you're not taking them that way, so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. But, you know, I mean, the, the bomb handed you the subject of a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Does that feel a little weird? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I went to – I wrote this book – um, I went back to graduate school to get an, uh, an MFA in creative writing. And one of the professors, the first moment that he heard what I was going to be working on, you know, his first response was, wow, you've been blessed with some really great material. Uh, yeah. And, you know, everybody in the class just cringed because, you know, how could you possibly, you know, say that, you know, having your wife, you know, in a bombing is being blessed with good material. But, I mean, to to a certain extent, yes, it's, it's ripe material, but... Um, you know, I never, I never looked at it in that way as like an opportunity or as a way to manipulate and take advantage of an experience. I mean, the writing of the book was honestly just a calling. It was just something that I knew I needed to do. And this is kind of like prototypical, even perhaps cheesy, the writer who has a book that needs to be written. I mean, that's what it was. That's what it ended up being for me. Um, what does Jamie think of it, your wife? Um, well, it, she's been very supportive throughout um, she's a very private person, and um, so it's been a, go- a negotiation. I mean, when I originally wrote this book, we had an agreement that I was going to write it. Whenever I finished, she would read it. And if she approved it in terms of us seeking publication, we would do it. And if she said, you know what, you need to s- just put this in your drawer for the rest of your life, then that's what I was going to do. And so throughout this whole process, it's been, you know, she's had veto power over pretty much everything. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that moment when she read it and um, it was thumbs up or thumbs down, were you nervous? Absolutely. 
<laughs> I absolutely was. But, you know, I was prepared. I mean, this was the deal that we had made. There was obviously some, some difficulty in terms of, you know, worry that I might be resentful, you know, in the aftermath if, if she had decided not to. But, you know, we've had a lot of negotiation on, on this. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's an important story, and I think it's been viewed by both of us as such. And we've had to try and balance, you know, personal family privacy needs with, you know, a desire to have this story be, be told and be known. Well, the book is really about you, and it's not about her so much, um, which I'm, I imagine makes her more comfortable anyway. I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, the narrative is obviously, um, even though she obviously in the narrative is being the victim of the terrorist attack, yeah. is in there. It's, it's my story. Yeah. Um, and so to that extent, I would agree with you, yes. Um, but it still hasn't, you know, mitigated some of, some of the, the difficult negotiations we've had to had to undergo in terms of the publication of this book. Well, it obviously made it into print, so she said yes, but what was her reaction more on a more detailed level? Um, you know, she's she's very supportive, and she's uh, happy that the book's out there. And when it comes to publicity, you know, it kind of, it's, it's interesting because, it, you know, it's not necessarily something that's desirable, even though this is you know, what's necessary in order to get a story out there. And so um, it's it's been interesting for us. It's been a very interesting experience. Uh, has it been hard on the marriage? No, I don't think it has. I mean, we've been, I think we've been, we've done a phenomenal job trying to balance and negotiate this, this space. Um, but I'm not going to say it hasn't been challenging. Mm. You dedicated to, uh, quote, uh, my friends and foes, our hope is not yet lost. Do you, do you feel you have foes? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and who are they? I think my foes would be um, amongst American Jews and, and Israeli Jews, those who, as I mentioned before, view this conflict in a way that I don't, as a, as a zero-sum game. You know, as there's only one possible positive outcome, and that's an Israeli victory and Palestinian defeat. And on the other side, Palestinians who feel the same way, but conversely. The people who helped arrange this meeting with the O'Days, who were instrumental in, you know, this whole project coming to fruition, were, were peace groups in Israel, those that are all about reconciliation and building bridges. Are you working with people like that now? Are you involved in that kind of activity? Um, you know, I'm not personally engaged in in any of the organizations. I mean, there are a lot of those organizations uh, exist in Israel. I mean, there's some phenomenal ones, particularly the Brief Families Forum, where Israelis and Palestinians who have lost children actually come together and, and meet as a way to both personally try and overcome what's happened and also you know, politically reconcile. Um, I've, I'm in contact with people who are a part of a number of organizations that do these types of, uh, these types of initiatives. But personally, um, you know, my, my primary engagement has actually been through my writing. Mm. Well, David, thanks so much for this time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. David Harris Gershon. His new book is What Do You Buy the Children of the Terrorist Who Tried to Kill Your Wife? This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, and we are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Mm-hmm.